you'll open with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 7. We're going to step away from Ephesians this week, and I decided we'll kind of come back to that next week. Uh, Three things you need to know. Sparkly, spiky, and dangly. That's what makes a good flower basket. And we have all three represented this morning. Sparkly, spiky, and dangly. So just file that away. That might be helpful someday to you, but somebody did a fine job with that. Um, Luke 7, verse 11 to 17. Let me ask you this. What what could be more? And some of you, I almost didn't ask this question because some of you have lost children. What could be more difficult in this life than losing a child? And the answer is a widow who's lost her husband, and then she loses her only son. Um, And she's then preparing to place him in the ground. And and this is the scene that, that Jesus and a large group of his disciples come upon and, and his response to this suffering that he sees, a suffering mother, gives, gives us his compassion, gives us hope, and gives us a direction to run in the, in the seasons of suffering and trial in our life. And so what we have here is a picture of when death meets life, that is Christ, our worship theme, who sits on the seat of judgment, life wins every time. Christ wins. So if you would, read with me Luke 7, verse 11 to 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen amongst us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. If you would, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we worship you. You are the God of the living and the dead. You sit, you judge all things, and you are good. And I thank you for the compassion of our Savior. Lord, he could have gone, he could have just kept walking. I'm on a mission. I've got to get to nine. Yet he stops and has compassion on a hurting woman. Lord, I just praise you that you are a God of compassion, of kindness, of gentleness, of humility, and of patience. And you do all those things without compromising your justice. Lord, and we want to be the same. We want to be a people that glorify you in our compassion towards others and then also in how we mourn. We want to be a people, Lord, who mourn well, 
Lord, who embrace the sorrows of life. We don't hide, we don't run from them, and yet we come to you, Lord, the one who has all life in his hands, the one who is our redeemer in every situation. Lord, use your word powerfully in our lives and our hearts and minds now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke gives us this picture. Uh, Jesus is going into nine, the city, and there's, there's two great multitudes coming together. So, so think of this. One, one in joy is following Jesus into the town. They're coming in. One is in sadness following the widow out of town. One feeling they, they have found the Messiah, the hope, the love, the, the life that they're looking for, full of joy. The other feeling they have lost all those things. I want to ask you, have you, have you ever such, suffered such a loss that you feel somewhat hopeless about your future? The old Congregationalist pastor, William Jay, he, he writes about these times in his life, and, and this is what he says. The path of sorrow and that path alone leads to the land where sorrow is unknown. No traveler ever reached that blessed abode who found not thorns and briars on the road. Luke 7, this is what Jesus sees. It's a, it's a woman on the road of sorrow, isn't it? She's, she's weeping. She's torn down in the greatest way. She's had her first or worst fears come true. She's already lost her husband, her provider, her partner in life, her, her oneness, you might say. And now she's lost her only son. Which means there's no one to provide for her in her old age. <laughs> there were no insurance policies. Insurance policies were your children. Which means she's all alone in the world until she meets Jesus. So what is the place of sorrow and mourning in your life? Where, where is it? Do, do you mourn well as a believer? And you say, okay, Rusty, explain that. Well, you, you can miss it, can't you, on either side. So that on one hand is what I call the eternal she'll be right attitude. So we, we smother any trouble, any difficulty, any sorrow, any difficulties with huge mountains of stuff, things like work or family obligations or entertainment, we, we pile into those things so that we actually never come to Christ. We never embrace the sorrows of the situations and come to Him and mourn well. That's how we can miss it on one side. And, and on the other side, we, we can miss mourning because of excessive grief where we allow our grief to have too much and too long of control over our lives so it becomes our identity. So that in the pain of our life, we are never able to come to Christ and see that all so much is still there for us. Everything that we have in Him. What we see in the life of Christ is He never passes a hurting person. You ever thought of that? He, he always draws close to them. He never says, sorry, I don't have time. I've, I've got to get on to Capernaum. 
And in their suffering, He ministers to them in such a way that they see His glory, His greatness, His compassion, and He gives them hope in the midst of their trials. So here's our main idea today, that Christ always draws close to the hurting believer to reveal His greatness. When we're hurting, we're full of sorrow. Christ always draws close to the believer to reveal His greatness, His compassion to us. Two things we want to see. First is the widow's sorrow and then Christ's response. The widow's sorrow, if you'll look in your Bibles with me at verse 11 and 12 once more. Verse 11 and 12. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Stop there, please. Notice there's a procession that's entering into the city. Christ has been in Capernaum. Nine is 40 kilometers away. Uh, And his disciples, and there's a great crowd, and they're traveling with him. They're coming close to the city. And as they're coming in, there's a procession coming out. They're passing each other on the road, if you can picture that. It's it's a funeral procession. Now, their funeral processions would be a lot different than ours. A typical Jewish funeral, the, the family would be out front, the mother She would be leading the procession. She would have ripped outer garments to show the depth of her sorrows and woes. She's publicly mourning the loss of her son. And then following her would be the body, anointed with oil, wrapped in linen, laid on a bear, a flat open casket made of wicker, and then carried on the shoulders of friends. And behind them would be a large procession of friends, family, and they even had professional mourners and musicians. Now that's her condition. And and Luke gives us great detail. He hones in on her, doesn't he? He says, she's a widow. And and this is her only son. And so she's weeping. Now, to lose a child, as many of you actually know in our congregation, it's it's got to be incredibly difficult, like, like losing part of yourself. But to lose the only son then, particularly then, would be the most difficult because he would be the one tasked to carry on the family name. He's the one that's inheriting the family property. He's the one who is your insurance policy, the one who is going to provide for you in your old age. Jeremiah 6, 26, it says it like this. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentations. And so, so great was the pain of losing a son that God uses that type of sorrow to describe the deepest of grief. Now what makes it even worse She was a widow and had done all this before with her husband. She had made this same march before. Now, without a father and husband, times had been difficult. But without a son, there would be no more family, no more daughter-in-law potential, 
No more grandchildren potential. This was the loss of future hope, of comfort, of expectations. She was alone in the world now. One person described it as the staff that you lean on in your old age has now been broken. You know, one of the really hard jobs I find as a pastor and minister is ministering to people just like this who have suffered and lost everything and they feel utterly hopeless. And sometimes they become angry at the wrong things. Let me just explain. Several years ago, there was a, a young man, a relative of Jennifer's mine, and he was walking back from the pub at night, and he was decided to walk home, and he stopped, and there was a great big lake, and he sat down on a pile of rubble, and he fell back, and he hit his head on the ice, and he went unconscious, he broke through the ice, and he, he drowned. And for many at the funeral, the enemy was God who had allowed this tragedy to happen to this young man. Now, for believers, you're going to face challenges, suffering, and I want to ask you, do you have a theology of death that suits the challenges that come at you? Let me explain. Death is the great enemy of the Christian. It's not our friend. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. The way God created it to be. And one of the results of the fall of man is sin entering and death entering our world. And so instead of hating God for death, we should hate the cause of man's death and that sin itself. And, and there's something, though, glorious that took place on the cross in respect to death. 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death has been removed. You see, the, the sting of death is sin. It's, it's coming in front of a God of judgment and righteousness and holiness and, and knowing that we are still in our sin. That is the sting of death. That is the pain of death. That is the great fear of death. And this is why when most people die, they think, if they're not believers, have I done enough? Because they're, they're, they're preparing to go up and want to defend themselves in front of the Almighty. My friends, in the death of Christ, He reigned over death. He conquered death. Completing his work of atonement, he rose again from it. And as he rose to life with God, so the believer, you are joined to him and you rose. And when Christ comes again, he will finally and fully judge and destroy all the works of sin and the enemy, and the last being death. So the believer says, Oh, death, where is your sting? And the answer is, Christ took the sting of death on the cross. Let's go to the second thing. The widow's sorrow, the Savior's compassion. Look at verse 13 with me in your Bibles. The Savior's compassion. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Think about it. 
Jesus had somewhere to go, right? Jesus always has somewhere to go. And he didn't just pass and say, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'm so sorry. He stops. He, he was affected by her situation. And the word here is compassion. It means he was moved into the deepest of places. He had the strongest of feelings. You see, again and again, when the Son of God is faced with someone who's suffering, the Bible says he has compassion. He has the, the deepest of emotions and sorrows for them. So you see it in uh, when he feeds the 5,000. He heals the leper. Toward Martha and Mary who just lost their brother. And towards his own mother at the cross. He has compassion for them and their pain. In fact, I, I can't find a single time when Jesus sees people suffering and he doesn't stop and minister to them. Isaiah 53, 4, 700 years before Jesus, this is how he describes the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah said that the Messiah would carry our sorrows. He'd bind up our brokenheartedness. And that is what we see in Jesus. Now, look there in your Bibles. Notice what he says to her. You see what he says? Weep not. There's a, a common Jewish funeral statement. Like we might say what? I'm so sorry for your loss. They would say, weep with him all you who are bitter in heart. And so let's all weep together with this suffering mother. And Jesus looks at her and he says the opposite. <laughs> he doesn't look at his guys and say, let's all weep together with her. He looks at her and he says, stop weeping. Verse 14 and 15, why? Look in your Bibles. Then he came up and he touched the bear and the bear stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. <laughs> he touched the bear. Jesus walks over to the wicked casket and he touches it. And those holding it on their shoulders would be shocked. They stopped walking. Because to touch the place of the dead is to make yourself ceremonially unclean. So if you did that, you could not go and you could not worship God. And the Jewish rabbis wrote endlessly about this. You've got to stay away from the dead. Jesus does the opposite. And people would have been amazed. Now, notice what he says. Young man, I say to you, arise. We see the power of the word of Christ. At his word, the heart began to beat. Blood began to flow. The soul came back and joined the body again. And his, at his word, there was victory over death. And then he hands this man back to the weeping mother. What a gift! <laughs> Fully alive to her. Jesus raised three people from the dead. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, and the widow's son. There was an elderly church father named Quadratus. And here is what he said. The people who were healed and those who were raised from the dead by Jesus were not only seen when they were healed and raised, but were always present also afterwards. 
And not merely during the time that the Savior walked upon the earth, but after his departure. They were there for a considerable time, so that some of them lived even until our time. You ever think of that? Quadratus is saying these three, they, they were around for a long time. Even in my life, you could go meet the widow's son. You could go to nine and, and ask him, did Jesus really raise you from the dead? And he would say, yeah, I was dead, then I was alive. Now notice the response. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen amongst us, and God has visited his people. Both groups, those coming, those going, they were in awe, praising God. They thought another prophet like Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead. He was here. And they say God has visited his people. That's a very deep Old Testament saying. The prophets always said in the last days God would visit his people in the Messiah. And now they're saying who can raise the dead but the Messiah? Surely God has visited his people saying this is the one the prophets told us about. How do we think and live this? How do you take this from your head to your heart? And I want to come back to that question. Do you weep well? Three things. First, don't smother your troubles. Don't smother your sorrows. Often, we feel the need to hide our emotions and our sadness from the world. We smother it with lots of things like work, like busyness, entertainment on the phone, sometimes addictions like alcohol or sexual addictions, busyness, even shopping. And sometimes we think it is wrong to complain, to pour out my troubles to God. He doesn't really want to hear from me. And I want to tell you, He is a God of a, He is full of compassion. He longs for you to come. See, we confuse complaining to God and complaining about God. He longs for you to come and lay open your heart to Him. There is no sin in complaining to God about your suffering, but there's great sin in complaining about God. Let me explain. Psalm 142, verse 2 and 3. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed him my trouble. Grief is eased by groaning to God. Who who else should we go to in our pain but our Father? Because who else can really help but Him? God loves when the hurting believer comes to Him with His burdens because they are coming in humility and confidence in Him that He can really help. And the fact that we have Christ, we have access. So what I'm saying is, you have to embrace the sorrows of your suffering and trial. And what does that mean? That means you say no to two things. First, you say no to hiding from it. You say no to putting up the tough exterior and saying, oh, she'll be right. I'll just give myself to this and it'll work itself out. No, no, no. You embrace the sorrow of it and you run to Jesus and you say, I am full of pain. I am full of difficulties. Redeem this situation. Be with me. 
But also on the other side, you, you, you don't give yourself to something and double down to it. You embrace the sorrow and pour it out to Christ. And he does a work of healing. Here's the second thing. We miss mourning on that side. We can pretend like it's not there. Our sufferings aren't real. We hide. On the other side, we can let it control us. Here's point two. Often, we allow our grief to have too much and too long a control over our lives. And you say, Rusty, what does excessive grief look like? Does that mean if I cry for a week when my husband dies, that's excessive? No. Grief is excessive and sinful when it continues to dominate and darken all other areas of your life so that it becomes your identity. So that the clouds of your sorrow make everything else look dark as well, long term going forward. And the darkness doesn't leave. So that all aspects of your life are controlled by the clouds of that sorrow. It becomes how you see life. It becomes your identity. It's a wound that you keep open rather than taking that to Christ to be healed. And the result is we are only focused then on what we have lost. What is gone and not what is still before us. What is still good in our lives. The work and the love of Christ for us. His compassion, His promises, His Spirit, and His people. Lastly, third, Jesus' promises comfort to you in your suffering. Just before Jesus is to send out His disciples... He says to them in Luke 6, verse 21, just before this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Christ promises you that when you mourn and you embrace the sorrow of your situation, you come to Him with it, He will comfort you. He will be with you. And what makes all the difference in the world is when you experience Jesus in the midst of your suffering. And the greatness of His compassion in the midst of your trials. Father, I, um, I thank You for the Savior we have. He's full of compassion on us. And he, we don't have to run away and hide when trials come and just say, I'm going to tough this out. And on the other side, Lord, we, we don't have to let it control us so it becomes our long-term identity. A wound that we just always live out of and keep open. Lord, I pray for every man and every woman here as we experience sorrow, we would embrace that. And we come to our Savior who sits on the throne. And we pour our, our heart out to Him. Our pain and our suffering. Lord, and through Your Word and through Your Spirit, You'd begin to heal. And You'd receive the glory as the compassionate healer and sustainer of Your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Let's sing the doxology together. Mm -hmm.